0: Well, as you've already heard, um, our pastor is on vacation this week, and we rejoice in him and we'll be praying for them. Of course, he also carried his children, his grandchildren, his parents, his in-laws, his third cousins, and a a couple of Chick-fil-A caterers. (laughs) So the rest of us give a very personal welcome, more personal than usual, to you here and to you online. And, uh, and I'd like for us to pray for Chris and all the family, <clears throat> because he matters to us. He matters to the Lord, and uh, God can bless him. Father, we do thank you today for our pastor and his family We thank you, Lord, that you have set shepherds among us. It's your plan, your purpose, your way of doing things. And we're just grateful, Father, that we are graced to receive the ministry we receive here in our spiritual family. We pray for safety and health and well-being for every one of them. And also here, Father, we pray today for one another Knowing that we are not worthy or able, but that you are worthy of our praise and able to bless us. <clears throat> we thank you for miracles of healing among our church family just in the past week. We thank you that the ones, for the ones that will yet come. And we thank you today, Father, that you know, among us as a spiritual family, you know every question, every doubt every difficulty, every challenge, every broken heart, every disappointment, and every hunger that has not yet been met. And we ask you in Jesus' name, believing in your sovereign authority, that our church family, every one of us, will indeed be strengthened and encouraged and watched over and healed and delivered and washed and refreshed this week by your power, and because of your love. In his name, amen. 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 The thing I'd like to talk about today is what I consider a huge problem for humanity today and all the way through history. That's the matter of alienation. Uh, get ready to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to do some reading there. But <clears throat> alienation is working full-time to separate and alienate spouses, siblings, parents and children, friends, neighbors, race and ethnic groups, languages, skin colors, politicians, religions, sport teams, (laughs) with apologies, anybody different from me or us? And sometimes I'm not so sure about you, okay? (laughs) But it's always been one of Satan's chief aims. And by the way, the Bible is not apologetic about pointing out that we do have an adversary. He is the enemy of Jesus. He is the opposer of the people of Jesus. He sows deception and discord and defeat and condemnation. And he's been doing it for a long time. In the beginning, God created mankind... And Satan immediately set in to alienate God from his people or his people from God. Don't think he has a whole lot of influence on God. The first institution in the Bible is family. God created family. And Satan immediately began to sow discord in that family. Cain and Abel. And the rest is history. Very early on... In the formation of God's plan and purpose in the earth to spread his word, to reveal his will, and to make available his redemption, God created covenant with his people, his bride. And throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his people with this metaphor. I'll be yours and you'll be mine. That's sort of a Hebrew way of saying I am pledged to you, we are husband and wife and God has been working ever since Eden to reconcile us with him, with each other and with the rest of the people in this world. Reconciliation is of course the opposite of alienation and it's about the only cure for alienation that I know. Some people have enjoyed nursing their prejudices and grudges for years, lifetimes. But reconciliation is the cure. In, um, in the glorious vision that uh, Isaiah had in chapter 6, he started rolling off the names and titles that would be applied to this Redeemer Messiah that was to come. And a chief one was Prince of Peace. And I want you to asso- associate reconciliation and peace in the way you think about things in the Bible. They go together. Reconciliation produces peace. <clears throat> now, the tragedy of alienation is that God is relational. At, I don't want to mean stop there. That itself is not a tragedy. He has created us in his image. In fact, he's even created our enemies in his image. So, that image is being relational. We are not designed to live without other human beings. One of the most terrible... uh, things that people can do to one another is to isolate them into solitary confinement. And that's what alienation attempts to destroy, his image. God has made every one of us with all sorts of attributes and marks and characteristics that are the stamp of his handiwork on us. And alienation tries to wipe that out. That's why it's such a big subject. And that's why God devotes so much attention to reconciliation. What would you call the story of the gospel? Reconciliation between God and mankind. Reconciliation. There was a huge gap. Now turn in your Bibles or your devices to 2 Corinthians 5. <clears throat> I'm afraid my beard is going to be brushing on the microphone. Second <laughs> Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 16. For God's love, now I'm paraphrasing, so you just go by what's up there. For God's love compels us, constrains us, drives us, controls us. What is it that controls your attitude in traffic? Is it God's love? What is it that controls who gets the last word in a marital argument? Is it God's love? But verse 15 goes on to say, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live just For themselves, or primarily for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again to demonstrate his victory over alienation. And verse 16 says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now put a line under that phrase too. We do not regard other human beings. Well, we should not regard other human beings from a worldly point of view. In other words, love others and see others as God loves them and as God sees them. Who? All of those who are the un-us, I guess you could say. <clears throat> I can I can work up a pretty good bit of grace when I'm in a member of a group or a family gathering or something that's not my favorite person. And I say, well, Lord, I can, I can scratch up a little grace if this thing doesn't last too long. You ever been there? <clears throat> but God says, all right, my child, That's not going to work because you're going to have to love them, not just a little bit for a little while. You're going to have to love them the way I love them. Well, Lord, how in the world do you feel about this particular individual? And he will say, well, I'm glad you asked. And then he'll tell you how he feels and you begin to hang your head. Back when Rob and Heidi Ziegler were married, they gave out some devotional books for couples. It was a part of their wedding gathering. And in that book, Rob and Joanna Teigen spoke about this business of seeing the image of God in other people around us. They said, How do you see the Lord's image displayed in one another? today. Now during the courtship, it was awesome. Uh, During the getting ready for this commitment, it was awesome. Not so much sometimes every day, but they said, how do you see the Lord's image displayed in one another today? The fingerprints of God are wonderful to see. I think it does more for us than for the other when we see them that way. Now, let's continue in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, beginning in verse 17. In verse 18, he says, God reconciled us to himself. Now, if you ever think the Bible is dull, just think about what a chasm there was between you and you and God before he reconciled us. I shudder to think where I would be without his love and grace and reconciliation. Psalm 5021 always makes me laugh when I read it because the primary phrase in there says, you thought, God is speaking. He says, you thought that I was just like you. And uh, we are not. Have you thought lately about how unlike God we can be? But then he says he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. He says, I've created an unspeakable miracle in bridging the gap between who I am and who you are, what I want and what you want, and how I behave and how you behave. But, and then he gave us the same ministry or calling or job or message of reconciliation. Now just think for a moment. If he reconciled us to him, it'll be like child's play to reconcile us to one another. You and I and even my worst enemy are not as different from one another as we all are from God. So if your first experience of reconciliation is Jesus reconciling you and the Father, then you ought to have the faith and the conviction and the assurance that any other reconciliation tasks that God is dealing with you about right now will not be a problem. They can be handled. Furthermore, he says in verse 19, and we'll refer to this later, he does not count our sins against us. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors, representing him, not simply representing him, but building a bridge from him to them. Uh, We can walk around in considerable pride and pomposity, you know, saying that we represent Jesus. Well, the purpose of diplomatic representation is to build connections between them. So if I sort of swagger and brag and smile self-righteously when I'm representing him, that doesn't build a bridge. But if I reconcile my heart to the heart of the one with whom I'm trying to share Jesus, that can build a bridge, a connection. It's a lot more than just advertising Jesus It's representing him in diplomatic connection with the Father. Okay, so we implore, appeal, or plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this again is one you need to underline. Because being reconciled to God is the basis of all the other recognition that takes place. Because recognition well reconciliation takes Christ likeness. And until I become a little more Christ like than I am, I can talk, I can broadcast, I can advertise, I can speak, but I may not build the bridge be reconciled to God, and that'll be the basis for all other reconciliation. Now, as is evident in this passage, this ministry is central in God's mind, and certainly urgent, because I think you would agree that we have a fairly thoroughly fractured society and world right now. I don't hear God giving up, but it is serious. So the question arises, How do we exercise this ministry of reconciliation? Uh, I've got five quick points, and there could be a thousand. Number one, (laughs) don't you start me. (laughs) Number one, we care for others. We value others. We love others. Not just the best we can do, but we do it the way God does. Our passage says it is the love of Christ that compels and urges us to exercise his ministry. That means it's our love for him that makes us love them. And it's also his love for us and them that can ever bring the reconciliation. 1 John four talks about this in verses ten and twelve. He defines love. This is what love is, not that we loved God. That's like a twenty-two caliber gun in the face of a cannon. We love God, yes, we do. But it's not that we loved God; it's that He loved us, and sent His Son. As an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He keeps getting that second personal thing in there, you know, our first personal, whichever it would be in that sentence. Help me, Phyllis. Okay. We love the way he loves. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Another warning. Sacrifice is always a part of reconciliation. How could it be otherwise when I've got one opinion, you've got another opinion, and I'm trying to generate sympathy in my heart for the fact that you're wrong. (laughs) But he keeps saying, Dear friends, since God loved us this way, in verse 11, We also ought to love one another this way. So remember, sacrifice is always a part of reconciliation. Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God by John's definition, whatever that be. But if we love one another, it's a sign that God lives in us. Sometimes I wonder how alive God is in me. But it also says that his love is made complete in us and through us. And he tells the hater and the hated the same thing. Same thing. Love one another as I have loved you. John 15, verse 12. Jesus shrinks his gospel, purifies it. He says, my command is love one another the way I have loved you. Now, the second way to work at reconciliation is to see others the same way he does. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.16 again, where it says, we regard no one from a worldly view. Now, when we're looking at this other in our lives, our alien of the week or the month of the year, ask ourselves repeatedly, how does God see him or her? We see them as hard-headed, overpowering, unreliable, but he sees them as his creation for whom he arranged the death of his own son. To bring reconciliation. There's another one. Number three. Forgive. In Isaiah 43, 25. God says. I blot out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake. And. I remember them. No more. That's hard. I can go through a dramatic and sometimes traumatic forgiveness, but it can come back on me. And God says, they don't come back on me. I don't remember them anymore. Another place in Psalm says, I cast them into the deepest part of the sea. And the New Testament backs this up. Colossians 3 says, If someone wrongs you, forgive them because, and don't stop with the because, because God forgave you. Can you deny that? It's the basis. Now there is a warning here also. Forgiveness on our part requires repentance on our part. The scripture sort of sneaky there. It doesn't say it straight out, but think about it. I have to get rid of my pride, my judgmentalism, my self-righteousness, and my hurt and my anger in order to forgive the way God forgives. Look at how his own covenant partner treated him throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament God had a lot of pain, pain of rejection, pain of being ignored, pain of being dishonored, pain of his people being unfaithful to him. But he evidently didn't hold on to it because he forgave the tenth time just as deeply and surely as he forgave the first time. Now the fourth part, Is not highly spiritual, but it's important. And I can count uh, some scriptures for it. Don't keep count of wrongdoings. Don't remember every incident of misunderstanding or pain. Forgive and stay in the forgiving mode. Keep forgiving as long as your own heart keeps bringing up the things you had to forgive in the first place. You just can't hold on to them. And God says, I do not hold their sins against them. So look at your alien in your mind and say, I promise not to hold on to the past mistakes and offenses and wounds, and disagreements, and disappointments. I will not hold on to it. Finally, humble yourself. Reconciliation always begins with I, me. Psalm 139 says, Search me. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me. There's not a single reference in that passage to the one we're angry with or alienated from. Nothing there. Then we come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is a command. Not a command to Jesus, he's already fulfilled it, but to us. Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. In his very nature, he was God. But he doesn't cling to that equality with God. He didn't grasp after it. It's intriguing to look at Adam in the book of Genesis who was clinging to Things in there that God didn't think He needed. Clinging to something more important than God Himself. But He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Imagine the come down of that for Jesus. And being found in appearance as a human. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Now here we get into a very human consideration. If I humble myself too much, you know, they're going to take advantage of it. I'll lose the upper hand in the situation. All of my prerogatives of advising them and telling them and judging them is going to be lost. But I ask you, did, in, in, in this passage, in this process described in the passage, did Jesus sacrifice his principles, his character, or his convictions? No. No. Did he cling to his image of being God, his office, his rights, or his righteousness? Did he cling to that? You know the answer. Here's a tough one. Did he wait for us to make the first move in reconciling? No. Did he have to die to self unjustly, unfairly, being misunderstood, being shamed? Yes. So beware reconciliation, okay? But was he successful? in reconciliation, reconciling us to God? And again, you know the answer, yes. A writer named Jonathan Sachs, who is a Jewish Bible scholar, defines chesed, that wonderful Hebrew word. We translate it as mercy, or loving kindness, or unilateral love, or undeserved love. He says, chesed, is the love we do as opposed to the love we feel. So reconciliation can never be based on our own feelings. The same scholar says, God trusted us enough to make us his ambassadors to an often faithless, brutal world. And to have done something even once in a lifetime To make someone grateful that there is a God in heaven who inspires people to do good on earth is perhaps the greatest achievement. I want us to open our hearts right now. We're going to pray. Open our hearts first to our Father, then to those close to us, and then to those who are alienated from us. And of course to the ones we don't know, and above all, to God himself. And I want to warn you, you cannot do reconciliation in your own strength, just not in us to be able to do it. It takes God's help. The Bible says, unless the Lord build a house, our labor is in vain. It doesn't build something godly if it's just done with our power. So I want you to bow with me and and think along with me. Don't repeat aloud. Crowd's too big for that, but uh, I want you to think with me as I go through this. Dear Father, with God's help, with God's help, I pledge whatever it takes to be reconciled. Reconciled with you. Reconciled with my spouse. With my family. With friends, sometimes former friends. With a neighbor. And with my adversary. I want to be a reconciler an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Every time we hear from the scripture, we need to say, yes, Lord, in whatever he's asking us to do. We have seen that everything he does and everything he asks of us is intended for redemption and reconciliation. You have to trust him, because sometimes when the going is tough, you don't feel like he's for you or really understands you. But he is every time, every time. And as an old mountain preacher said one time, he can use anything to bless you. He can hit a straight lick, even with a crooked stick. So if life is seeming tough to you, or if this particular assignment of reconciliation seems thorny to you, Embrace it, because God says it. So let's again ask God's help as we go from this time today, our relationship with him, first of all, and our relationship with all the others in our lives. Let it be according to his will and by his power and for his glory. Not just to give you and me a little peace of mind, but for his glory and his purposes. Let's bow. We thank you for the word, Father. We thank you that your word carries redemption. It carries power and enablement. Your word carries wisdom beyond our own. Your word carries provision to implement it. And your word carries us. We thank you today for the work you be- we believe you will do in us and through us in the ministry of reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go today, let's carry it. Even the warnings and the underlinings, let's embrace it all and believe that he can bring it to pass. God bless you. Now, if there are any of you who want to have some prayer time with some of the elders and leaders here, some of them will be up here in front. Go in the promise of his blessing. Amen.